You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Do you remember back when you were a child? For some of you, that was longer than for others. But do you remember back when you were a child and you were uh, would go out to the playground at recess and all of your classmates would gather into a group and you would all decide sort of as a group what game you were going to play? I remember doing that because I attended school here at this school when the old three-story building was here. And we would rush out onto the playground and we would all decide we're going to play soccer or we're going to play baseball or we're going to play football or kickball or whatever it was. And and real quickly, if, if your class was like mine, two kids would distinguish themselves right away as team captains. And they would sort of isolate themselves from the crowd, and then they would take it upon themselves to choose their teams. And the team captain always selected his best friend first, and so that he could have his best friend on his team. And I was never anybody's best friend, so I had never had the distinguished honor of being chosen first, or second, or third, or fourth, or fifth, I had the distinguished honor of being that child who remained invisible until the final round of the draft. In fact, until about third or fourth grade, I was starting to wonder if I should use my powers of invisibility for good or for evil. <laughs> and I was always the kid who was left standing next to the child in the wheelchair while the team captain was agonizing over the decision. Should we choose Osman or the handicapped kid? And, oh, and they were way at like that and kind of feel awkward. Aren't you glad that the Lord does not choose like that? I'm glad that that's not how the Lord chooses. In fact, the Lord is quite the opposite. The Lord chooses the losers for His team. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not losers from the human perspective, because we are all losers, so it's hard to distinguish losers from amongst losers, since we all belong to that category. But losers from the, from the world's perspective, how the world views itself, and how the world views those with, within their own system. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. So that, listen, no man may boast before God. God has chosen the weak things to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise, the things that are nothing in the eyes of the world, and so that He may overturn those things that are something in the eyes of the world. God chooses the weak, the beggarly, the poor, the foolish, the the not the noble, the not the strong, the not the recognizable ones of the world, in order that He might bring victory. And He chooses His team in such a way that when the team wins, the coach And the captain get all the glory. That's him. That's how he chooses us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the power would be of God and not of us. 
He chooses the weak. He chooses the beggarly. He chooses the handicapped. He chooses the things that in the eyes of the world are nothing. They're insignificant in order that he might overturn those things and demonstrate his glory and his power in these crushed, weak, cracked vessels that are you and I. I'm thankful the Lord does not base his choosing upon anything in me because I was better looking or smarter or more gifted or more talented or or more able or more mighty or more noble. If that were the basis of the choosing, if that were the basis of God's working, then I certainly would have met, would not have met the qualifications and neither would many of you. Paul doesn't say the Lord didn't choose any noble. He said he didn't choose many noble. There were some nobles. There were some wise people. There are some gifted people that the Lord chooses and that he uses. But by and large, the way the Lord determines the choosing and the using is not upon, not by anything in us. And he is not restricted by any of our inabilities or our inarticulatenesses or our weaknesses, or our frailties in using us. Aren't you thankful for that? Are you thankful that the Lord, when He looked out at the mass of humanity, did not just choose the best and the brightest and the most articulate for His kingdom, but instead He chose to use the beggarly, the weak, the poor, and the insignificant? That's how He did it with Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord says, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He didn't choose Israel because they were mightier or bigger than the other nations. He chose the weakest and the most beggarly, an obstinate and stiff-necked people. That's what the Lord did when He decided that He was going to send His Son into the world. He had Him be born in a real small town, not Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem would be the seat of power. That would be where you would expect a king to be born. But what did the Lord choose? Bethlehem. So that the prophet would say in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. He chose a small town. And then his son grew up in Nazareth. Do you remember the question in John chapter 1? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is this not Joseph's son? Who's Joseph? A carpenter. Not a king. Is this not Joseph's son? A beggar? A a poor, insignificant person who lives in the land and just works with his hands and does his thing? And yet it is the poor and the frail that God chose to raise his son. When God chose a shepherd for the people of Israel, He didn't choose David's tallest and his brightest and his most able and gifted sons. He chose this one little kid, the youngest, who's still out in the field playing a harp and singing songs and watching over sheep. But who would have guessed that? That's God's, that's the history of God's choosing. The weak, the foolish, the insignificant in the eyes of the world. And who would have expected God to choose Paul, Saul of Tarsus? You wouldn't have expected that. If you wanted to choose somebody to reach Gentiles for Christ and to take the gospel to the farthest reaches of the then known world, you would not have chosen Saul of Tarsus. But the Lord did. Imagine the shock and imagine the awe, imagine the absolute incredulity, the unbelievableness that was in people's minds and hearts when they heard that Saul of Tarsus had become a believer. The modern day ruler of Iran, Ahmadinejad, He has denied the Holocaust that took place in Europe in the early 1900s. He's denied the Holocaust and he's intent on creating another one. 
He wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map and destroy them. That is his stated, intended purpose. That is what he's driving at. That is what he wants to do. Imagine the surprise if you woke up this morning and the headline in the news was that the leader of Iran converted to Judaism and became a Jew and was learning Hebrew so that he could read his Hebrew Scriptures. Imagine the shock. Would you believe that? And then if Ahmadinejad showed up with his secret service at a Jewish synagogue and wanted to attend a worship service, what do you think the leader of the Jewish synagogue would do? Do you think he might doubt that Ahmadinejad had become a genuine convert to Judaism? Do you think that the world would be shocked? Listen, friends, that would be no more unbelievable than that the one, Saul of Tarsus, who once persecuted the faith, would now become its best-known preacher. That's the type of radical change that the Apostle Paul has described in giving his own testimony in Acts chapter 22. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 22. Who would have guessed Saul of Tarsus? Who would have chosen him for God's team? Certainly you and I would never have expected that. We would have expected the religious leaders to join the team. We would have expected all of the the religious leaders in the nation of Israel who knew the Old Testament, who knew the Scriptures, to have jumped on board and come to faith. But we would never have expected God to choose men like Peter and John, just average fishermen, to lead His church. Or a man like Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the church, to become a preacher of the faith that he once tried to destroy. And in Acts chapter 22, so far we have looked at Paul's conduct, or Saul's conduct before his conversion to Christ how he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and how he once tried to destroy the faith that he was now preaching. And then we looked at the circumstances surrounding his conversion, beginning at verse 6, how he was engaged in the act of persecuting the church when Jesus Christ arrested him on the road to Damascus and pushed his face into the dust and blinded him and gave him a heavenly vision and commissioned him then to become a preacher of the faith that he was persecuting. And then we looked at the commission after his conversion, how once he got into Damascus, Ananias commissioned him by saying to him, the Lord has appointed you to see the righteous one, to know his will, and to hear an utterance from his mouth, and you will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. Now get up and get baptized, having washed away your sins by calling on the name of the Lord. And Saul did that. But that's not the end of the story. And that's not the end of Paul's testimony. So we pick up the story in verse 17 of Acts chapter 22. And I want you to follow along as I read verses 17 through verse 22 and 23. It happened, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by, approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. Now there is a gap between verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16 ends with Paul in Damascus. Verse 17 begins with Paul going to Jerusalem. There is three years between those two verses. 
How do I know that? Because of the details in Acts chapter 9. Paul spent three years in Damascus teaching and, and ministering there until the king of Damascus got angry enough with him that he tried to kill him and the Jews plotted to kill him. And do you remember they had to let Paul down through the wall in a basket and escape by night to get away? Then that trip that Paul mentions in verse 17 is mentioned in Acts chapter 9 and Luke says it happened after many days. Galatians chapter 1 says it was a three-year time period between Paul's conversion and his first trip back to Jerusalem. So we have Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 1 and Luke's description in Acts chapter 9 that tell us there is three years between verse 16 and verse 17. In that visit that Paul made to Jerusalem, that was the visit where he came into the city and Luke says he was trying to associate with the disciples. He was trying to break into Christian circles and get into the get into the synagogues where the Christians were meeting and into the temple where the Christians were teaching and into the homes where the Christians were meeting. He was doing his best to break into Christian circles, but Luke says they were afraid of him fearing that his conversion was a ruse. Fearing that he was trying to get into the church so he could destroy from the inside what he wasn't able to destroy from the outside. They didn't believe that Saul of Tarsus was a disciple. And can you blame them? You certainly wouldn't fault the leader of a synagogue for keeping Ahmadinejad out of the synagogue after he claimed to become a Jew, would you? You would understand that kind of apprehension. But it wasn't until Barnabas grabbed a hold of Saul and took him into the presence of Peter and John and the rest of the apostles and introduced Saul to them and told the apostles about how he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. And then it says that he walked freely throughout Jerusalem, testifying to the name of the Lord. And he was arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Well, that visit to Jerusalem that Paul begins to describe in verse 17 only lasts 15 days, just two weeks, and there's a plot formed on his life. And then the believers grab him. This is from Acts chapter 9. The believers take Saul and they rush him down to Caesarea and they ship him off by boat to Tarsus and they send him away in order to preserve his life. It is that visit to Jerusalem that is what Paul is describing from his perspective, something that we haven't read happened there yet, beginning at verse 17. So I want you to notice the very first thing he says, it had happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. Now Saul doesn't mention, or Paul doesn't mention, that there was a three-year time period between these two events, Damascus and Jerusalem. Why? The three years is irrelevant. What he does want them to understand is that when he got back to Jerusalem, he went into the temple. Now that's a significant detail. Why is it a significant detail that he went into the temple when he got back to Jerusalem after his conversion? Why would Paul mention that? Do you remember the charge that they brought against him? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our what? Our people, our law, our temple, and he's even defiled the temple by bringing Greeks into the inner sanctuary. What Paul's saying is, look, right after I became a believer, I went into the temple to pray. He's no, he's no preacher against the temple. This answers the charge of him preaching against the temple. Paul's showing that even after his conversion, the temple to him had a significance. It had a, he had a certain reverence for that place as the center of Jewish worship where he had grown up and ministered and, and played and worshiped his whole life. And then after he becomes a believer, he goes where? Into the temple. He's no desecrator of the temple. That's his point. I went into the temple and I was praying and it says he fell into a trance. Like the one in Acts chapter 10 that Peter had. Do you remember when the, the sheet was let down out of heaven with all manner of animals on it in Acts chapter 10? That's sort of a trance. Peter had that up on the rooftop. Paul's having a trance, in, falls into a trance while he's in the temple. 
A trance is, is not a dream. It's not a, a, a vision of sorts. It's not a, um, some sort of a premonition or an idea that he's having. He, he literally loses, loses focus and a, a, in a trance you would, he would lose focus and he would lose a grasp with the things that are going on around him and all of his senses would be heightened and he literally slips into a vision in which Jesus Christ gives him some instructions. What are those instructions? Verse 18, he fell into a trance and he saw Jesus saying to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul, I want you to get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to believe what it is that you're saying about me. Now, Paul was in Jerusalem and he was ministering. When he got into Jerusalem during those 15 days that he was there, at some point during those 15 days that he was there, this episode happened in the temple in Jerusalem. He was in the temple, he's praying, he falls into this trance. Now, outside of, from Acts chapter 9, we learned that something else was happening. All the believers were hearing about the plots that were being formed on Paul's life and they were trying to get Paul out of Jerusalem. And Paul was resisting that. He was in the temple. He was praying. And it took the Lord to appear to him in a vision and say, Saul, Paul, get out. Stay out of Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem and get out quickly because they're not going to believe the testimony about me. And what was happening is Paul was going into the synagogues and he was debating and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, Acts chapter 9 says, and they were trying to put him to death. They were trying to kill him. So when Paul went back to Jerusalem, what did he go back for? He went back to minister. And he was going back to Jerusalem, to his home city, to where he had grown up, to the people that he knew the best, and he was going back there to minister. And i got to wonder, did the Apostle Paul, when he got back to Jerusalem, did he pull Gamaliel aside and sort of start that friendship all over again and tell Gamaliel about what had happened? Did he go to Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests? Did he go back into a synagogue, the Hellenistic Jews, the synagogue where he was a member and where he worshipped, where they stoned Stephen? Did he go to some of Stephen's family? Did Paul go to his own sister? We find out that Paul had a sister who lived in Jerusalem. Did he go to his own sister and his family members and begin to share Christ with them? That's what he went back to Jerusalem to do. Paul was there to minister and he was beginning his ministry in the synagogues in the city of Jerusalem and he was beginning his ministry to Jewish people. He was going to his own people and that's significant. Why? What was the charge that they brought against him? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our what? Our people. So after he becomes a believer, the very first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue and begins to minister to his own countrymen. That's where Paul's heart was. He loved his kindred according to the flesh. He loved his fellow Jews. He loved his brethren. He loved his nation and he loved his people. And he wanted to serve them and he wanted to share Christ with them. But while he's in the temple engaged in that activity of praying... The Lord appears to him and says, get up and get out of Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting to me is Paul's response. Just a few minutes ago, you would have read in his testimony how right on the road to Damascus, he says, Lord, what shall I do? Name it. Got it covered. I'll do anything you want. You give me the charge and I will do it. Well, now in the temple, three years later, the Lord says to him, Saul, get up and get out of Jerusalem. Get out quickly because they're not going to receive the testimony about me. They're not going to listen to you. And look what Paul says to him. And I said, Lord... They themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying them. Notice how he takes credit or responsibility, not credit, but he takes responsibility and ownership for two things, beating Christians. 
Now, whatever visual image you have of the Apostle Paul, whether he's tall or short or thin or sort of chunky with a beard or bald or, or however you view him, however you picture the Apostle Paul, can you picture him in your mind beating Christians? Can you picture that Apostle of love beating believers because they named the name of Christ? I don't know about you, but for me, that is not an image that comes to my mind quickly. Because we know so much about the Apostle Paul, the idea that he would be the one who would pick up the lashes and begin to lash believers, to me, is almost something that is difficult for me to even picture or believe. But it is a reality. That's what happened. Why did they beat believers? It was because they considered them blasphemers. To attribute Messiahship and deity to Jesus Christ, this one who died under a curse on a Roman cross, that's blasphemy. And they would beat them for preaching in the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 5, that's what the synagogue did to all the apostles. They flogged them, you remember? And they left the presence of the council, having been rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His namesake. Those were the types of lashings, the beatings that they did upon believer. And Paul participated in those. He himself beat believers. And not only that, but he also saw that or felt that he had the blood of Stephen, that martyr, from Acts chapter 7, 6 and 7, on his hands. Paul saw himself as a guilty, culpable participant in the murder of Stephen. You say, well, all he did was hold coats. No, it's not all he did was hold coats. He held coats, but his involvement in that, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, says he was in hearty agreement to putting Stephen to death. Paul felt guilty for that because he helped orchestrate it, he helped plan it, he helped execute it. He was involved in that from the first to the last. Everything about Stephen's defense and everything about his being drug outside the city. And when Paul stood before God in the temple, he said, i got the blood of Stephen on my hands. I'm guilty of this. And he mentions that. But look what Paul is saying. It's almost as if Paul is arguing, and I hate to use that word, and I use it very cautiously, uh, protesting after a fashion, or in a sense, with the Lord. Paul, get out of Jerusalem. But Lord, they know. They know the testimony that I have. They know how I used to persecute those who called on your name. Beating them. They know my lifestyle before I became a believer. Now why is Paul mentioning that? Why is he bringing this up to the Lord? It is as if Paul himself thinks, or Paul himself believes, that because of the radical transformation that has taken place in his life from becoming a persecutor to a preacher, because of that radical transformation that everybody would be able to see, everybody would be able to witness and know about, that that would add powerful testimony to the truth of the Gospel. Lord, they know what I used to do, and they know that I don't do this anymore. They are able to see the radical transformation that has taken place between me persecuting saints and me protecting and preaching the faith that I once tried to destroy. You ever... You ever thought for a moment that when you first got saved, that because of the radical transformation in your life, that people who were close to you before you became a believer would suddenly see that and be drawn to the Lord by that? We think that, don't we? When I first got saved, I thought, with the radical transformation that's taken place in my life, surely all of my family members will be able to see what's happened, how I once was, and now how I am, and that will be a powerful testimony for Christ. There's something to be said for the testimony of a transformed life, but that in itself doesn't draw anybody to Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. They know what I used to be like. They know what I'm like now. But Jesus is saying, Paul, they're not going to receive the testimony about me. It just served to embitter them. I know a man who got saved, and when he when he got saved, 
uh, he and his wife used to go to the bars and party and get drunk all the time. We're into the whole party drug and alcohol scene. And the Lord saved him out of that and transformed radically his life. Now, do you think that his wife saw the radical transformation in her husband and was drawn to the Lord because of that? She wasn't. She was embittered against him. Why? She lost a drinking partner. She lost a partying partner. She continued to live the lifestyle that they had lived beforehand, and his life was radically changed, but the radical change in his life only served to embitter her further against the things of the Lord and against Christianity. And in Saul's case, that's exactly what happened with those who were in Jerusalem. They knew the testimony of how he had gone from persecuting the faith to preaching the faith, but that didn't draw them to Christ. It only embittered them. Why? Because they had lost their pit bull. Jesus had drafted their most valuable player. And they were bitter. They didn't like that. And they hated him. And from that moment on, they tried to kill him. And Jesus said, they're not going to accept your testimony about me. Get up and get out of Jerusalem and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Now what's interesting to me, friends, and this is a bit curious, is how the Lord allows his saints to sort of protest after a fashion or discuss orders like this. Does that strike you as odd? I was asking myself, is it wrong for Paul to say, but Lord, uh, here's how I feel about this. Here's... Here's my perspective on that. Is that a wrong thing for Paul to do? I don't think it is. John Calvin had a good statement on this passage in his commentary. He says this, God gives his saints leave to utter their affections before him, especially when they seek nothing but the confirmation of their faith. That's what Moses did, right? Moses, this is what I want you to do. But Lord, I'm not a gifted speaker. I mean, I'm not the guy that you should choose. And He sort of has this interaction with the Lord. Now, the Lord could have just said, okay, Moses, snuff. Snuff Moses out. But he didn't do that. He walked Moses through the process. He did it with Peter. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord. No unclean food has ever passed these orthodox Jewish lips. And three times that happened. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And there's this interaction. And here the Lord says to Paul, get up and leave Jerusalem. And Paul sort of protests. He What we see in the heart of the Apostle Paul is he didn't willingly and readily leave Jerusalem. Lord, they know. They know how I was. They know how I am. They're going to receive this testimony. The Lord says, get out. They're not going to receive it. And friends, as long as you and I do not question the Lord or argue with the Lord for the purpose of overturning His will or resisting or disobeying, but but our purpose is to have our faith and our convictions and the instructions confirmed, there's nothing wrong with wrestling with what the Lord says in His Word or instructions that He gives us and asking why and thinking it through. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as the end result is the confirmation of our faith and not disobedience to the faith. And that's what Paul's doing. He expresses to the Lord his thoughts about this, his affections, his desires. And the Lord says, get up and go quickly. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Now, friends, there's a truth here in Jesus' words, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. There's something I notice here that I think is instructive for us and encouraging for us, and it's this. Oftentimes, God, I should begin by saying this, God has the freedom, and he does, appoint his laborers to fields of ministry that to his laborers do not seem most fitting for them. God has a way of appointing His laborers, His workers, to fields of ministry that we look at and say, I'm not fit for that. That's not what I would choose to do. But God reserves the freedom to do that. And that's exactly what's happening with the Apostle Paul. Listen, 
If you were to take every Jew on the face of the earth and ask yourself, I want to pick the quintessential Jew, the best person to evangelize Jews, and to take the gospel to Jews and to win Jews for Christ, who would you choose? Paul. Why? Educated by Gamaliel, the best rabbi of the day, perhaps of all time. Strictly according to the law. Saul of Tarsus knew the law better than anybody. He was educated by Gamaliel. He was an up-and-coming star. He was zealous. He was aggressive. He was ambitious. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures. He was young. He was, he was the quintessential Jew. Perfect tool for God to use to reach the Jewish people. And Jesus said, I'm sending you to Gentiles. What? How much sense does that make from a human perspective? None! This is the perfect tool to use to reach Jews. And you're going to waste that by sending him to Gentiles? That is the most unnatural, the most weak, foolish, beggarly, idiotic thing you could possibly think of from a human perspective. This rabbi who knows the Old Testament better than perhaps 95, 99% of the people who were alive at his time, and you're going to send him to Gentiles. Is that foolish to you? Friends, God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Does that mean that it was wrong for Paul to minister to Jews? No. Does that mean that God couldn't have used Paul to minister to Jews? No. It's just that the Lord saved Paul to send him to Gentiles. You say he wasted all of his Jewishness on Gentiles? No. That was the ministry that was perfectly suited for him. And friends, I am glad that the Lord has the freedom and that he does take us and appoint us to ministries that do not seem best suited for us in order that the power might be not of us, but of him, so that he gets the glory. Do you remember what we started with? He takes the weak, the foolish, the beggarly, the things that are not, and he chooses them and uses them in order to overturn all of the wise and the strength and the things that are of the world. That's what he did with Paul. Who would have chosen a Jewish rabbi to send him to Gentiles? That's not a choice that you and I would have made. And here's Paul's point. That's not a choice that he made. He was given the commission on the road to Damascus and he had it confirmed in the temple. I'm sending you to Gentiles. But Lord, they know. They know what I used to be like. They know what I'm like now. This is the perfect ministry. Paul didn't go readily and, and quite willingly. And his point is that his commission to Gentiles was something that came by divine revelation. This was not something that Paul thought up. His ministry was not something that he created. It was not something that where his heart rested initially. He had to wrestle through this with the Lord. He went into Jerusalem to minister to Jews. And the Lord said, they're not going to receive you. Get out. I'm sending you to Gentiles. And Paul's basic point in Acts chapter 22 is, my ministry and my message come by divine revelation. They were not something that I thought up. They were not something that I started. They're not the product of my own mind and my own desires. His desire was for the Jewish people. I'm going to send you away to Gentiles. Now, verse 22 says they listened to him up to this statement. What statement? I'm sending you away to Gentiles. They listened to the Apostle Paul up until the time that he mentioned Gentiles. And then what happens? Look at verse 22. They began to raise their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they tore off their cloaks and began to throw them into the air, I think, in preparation to stone him. 
They were pulling off their cloaks. Nobody around to hold their cloaks. They were throwing their cloaks in the air, throwing dust up in the air. A great Middle Eastern riot. This is what we all see on TV every once in a while. A riot of this nature. And they were calling for his blood. Away with such a fellow, he shouldn't be allowed to live. They're asking Lysias and all of the Roman commanders and the Roman centurions and the Roman soldiers who are surrounding Paul to have him executed. He deserves to die. Why? Because he would suggest that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would in the very temple of God commission a Jew to go to Gentiles. They listened to him until he said the word Gentiles and then everything broke loose. We want him dead. Why? Because he would suggest that God would actually have a heart to reach Gentiles. Now, were they opposed to Gentile uh, conversion? They weren't opposed to proselytizing Gentiles at all. They, they sought that. They tried to do that. But here's how a Jew proselytized a Gentile. Jews wanted Gentiles to become Jews. Submit to circumcision, the law, the customs, the traditions, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, and all the feasts and the offerings and everything, and to hold to the law and the culture and the customs and all the rituals of the law. That was Jewish or Gentile conversion. But what Paul is suggesting is not that. What Paul is suggesting is that a man is saved on the basis of faith and faith alone, and Paul was not requiring Gentiles to become Jews. And this infuriated them because it destroyed the distinctiveness of the Jewish people and the distinction between Jew and Gentile. They listened to him until he said Gentile, and they said, now we want him dead. Now consider for a second what they have listened to Paul say so far. Let me review his message. So far the Apostle Paul has said, a light appeared to me that was brighter than the noonday sun. This being whose whose radiance made the sun look like a shadow by comparison, blinded me and I saw a heavenly vision. And who was this being that dwells in light unapproachable? Paul has said he's none other than Jesus Christ. So he has affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ. And the crowd has remained silent for that. Then he has affirmed that the righteous one, the one who appeared to him, just Jesus of Nazareth, is the righteous one, the Messiah. So he has affirmed the messianic credentials of Jesus Christ, implicating them in rejecting and crucifying their Messiah. And the crowd has remained silent for this. Then the Apostle Paul has affirmed that salvation and the washing away of sins comes by calling on the name of this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have remained silent for that. And then he has declared that he himself has been commissioned by this one to be a a witness to all men of everything that he has seen, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has commissioned him to be a sent one, an apostle. And they have remained silent for that. Until he said, I'm being sent to the Gentiles. And that, my friends, was more than they could bear. That was beyond the pale. That was over the edge. That was too much. They could listen to him talk about the deity of Christ, the Messiahship of Christ, their rejection of him, that salvation comes by him and him alone, But when he talked about being sent to the Gentiles with that message, they couldn't tolerate that, and they called for his blood. Now, so far in the message, the Apostle Paul has answered all four of those objections. Sorry, three of the four objections. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. And Paul started in verse 3, and he says, I'm a Jew. Born in Tarsus, raised in this city, educated according strictly according to the law of our fathers by Gamaliel. The second thing they accused him of was that he was anti-law, and Paul answered that charge by saying, I was educated in the law, I was zealous for the law, I was zealous for the traditions of God, and I knew the law well because I was educated by Gamaliel. Well, he's against the temple. Paul has answered that objection and that charge by saying, I went into the temple to pray after I became a believer. I'm not against the temple. 
Well, the fourth charge, I think Paul would have answered had he been given an opportunity, but they cut him off. And you can see how he's beginning to prepare to answer that charge by talking about being commissioned to Gentiles in the temple. And the charge was he's defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. And Paul has sort of answered that by saying, I was commissioned to Gentiles from the temple. I mean, if it's if it's unclean to bring a Jew into the temple and a Jew couldn't come into the temple, then why is it that the Lord commissioned me to Gentiles from right inside the heart of the temple where he was accused of bringing Gentiles into? But before Paul has a chance to answer that the, the capital crime, the capital charge against him that he brought a Greek into the temple, the crowd breaks loose and he's not allowed to finish his speech. They listened to him up till Gentile and then they broke open. Now friends, here's what I want you to take away from this, from Paul's example, and we're going to close with this. Many times people will not, res- people will not accept our testimony about Jesus Christ, no matter how radical the transformation in our life has been, no matter how phenomenal has been the sanctification that God has brought about, no matter how wonderful has been our experience. We look at our own salvation and we think everybody should see what's happened to us and be drawn to the Lord by it. But the truth is that they're not. And they will resist us and they will be hostile toward us. And sometimes their hostility is vented on us in the most, in the most vehement and pointed fashions and ways and intensities. And what I see in the Apostle Paul is that even though his Jewish brethren, the people that he had a heart for and longed for, even though they rejected him and they hated him and they would not accept his testimony about him, the Apostle Paul did not for one minute back down in sharing the truth with them. And friends, you and I have the exact same responsibility and the exact same commission to the Lord. Even though somebody may not receive our testimony about Jesus Christ and the Word of God and salvation that comes through Him, we should never for one minute give up loving them sharing truth with them, or praying that they would be saved, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did for the Jews. His earnest expectation and longing for his brethren was that they would be saved. And he shared Christ with them every chance that he got. And they were, and he was told, they will not accept your testimony about me. But Paul continued to share the truth with them anyway, and pray for them anyway, and preach to them anyway, and love them anyway. And you and I have the responsibility to do the exact same thing. To our siblings, to our children, to our parents, to our co-workers, and to our relatives who have that kind of hostility toward Christ. It may be that they will never accept your testimony about Him, but friends, you and I still have the responsibility and should, like Paul, finish our course and the ministry which we have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God and trust God to work through that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again for the salvation that You have brought to us. Thank you that you worked in our hearts and brought us to faith in Christ and the truth of your word. We thank you for the example that we see in Paul and for every person who is seated here this morning and for myself. We have friends, we have family, we have relatives and people who are very close to us who have not yet trusted Christ for salvation. We pray, God, that you'd give us the grace to persevere in prayer for them, in sharing truth for them with the honest and hopeful expectation that you would reach down and deliver them from their sin. Thank you that you're the God of all grace and glory and that you're able to do this. And we pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.